So my name is Nicholas Proctor. I'm a nursing professor here at the University of South Australia. I'm the director of a mental health and suicide prevention research group. We've got around 32 members. A co-director is a person with lived experience, a lived experience academic. And we undertake research for real world impact at the point of care. So we're interested in finding opportunities for people with lived experience who want to contribute to our research program and really guide that program in whatever way is possible. So I guess in the last 10 years or so, we've seen this real explosion in interest in involving people with lived experience in research, not just as participants, but in the doing of research. Tell us why it's so important to involve people with lived experience. For us, it's important because it's uh, who we are, what we stand for, and how we work with others. So for us, it's about lived, ex lived experience partnerships, generating ideas for research, priorities, questions that really guide our program of work and, and right through to grant-funded work, PhD projects or student projects in, in other categories. So what, what's important to us is to employ lived experience re research assistants, um, have lived experience guiding and engaging with us on the recruitment process, data collection, analysis, reporting, right through to promotion. And that also includes joint authorship and contribution to publications and presentations in, in various ways. So we, we like to see ourselves as providing opportunities um, and roles for people with lived experience who really want to contribute and we create flexible ways through which they can do that. So give us an example. Let's take a topic. Let's think about suicide prevention, for example. What difference does it make involving people with lived experience of suicide in the doing of research? Yeah, the, the, the key difference really is providing that deeper meaning structure understanding, um, providing information and guidance around questions about ethics, privacy, confidentiality and research, providing information um, around um, the ways in which data collection and analysis can happen. Um, people who can really guide the right approach to engage, not just in terms of those things that I mentioned, but also the dissemination of materials. And when you have um, shared values around things like that, it's a great, it creates a personal narrative through which you can then support, um, you know, short, shared authorship, um, even curricular design and research. So for us as researchers, it encourages reflection, feedback, and ongoing learning. So information exchange and building capacity and strength for our research work. Um, and for people with lived experience, um, those authentic engagements and relationships become very visible to others and people want to be part of what we do. And we like to think of that as a benchmark of our success. There's a danger though, isn't there, that the people that get involved become expert patients and therefore not representative of the real people out there in the community, vulnerable populations who you're actually trying to represent and trying to reach. And, you know, there's this sense that actually research itself as a process is racist and that we're not involving the right people. How do you kind of deal with that issue? How do you try and make sure that you are involving the right people? 
What we do is we start from very grassroots understandings uh, and we have a dynamic methodology around that. So what we do is set up research, uh, flexible research partnerships, and that might include steering groups for research projects, enabling co-production of study information, recruitment process, uh, consumer involvement or service user involvement, uh, data collection tools and study promotions. So we're constantly reaching out and reaching in. We're constantly leaning in and listening in and engaging through all of these processes. So we've got a dynamic and flexible process where academic staff can provide guidance around the research aspects, maybe the scientific aspects, learned experience, if you like, but we're constantly focusing on fresh and new ways, knowing how and when to move in new ways to create opportunities for new people, new voices, new ideas to come forward. And the other benefit of all of this is that we're doing it within a university environment. So we're out of the clinical setting to be able to do this. And I think that really supports um, some of these opportunities, authentic engagements and relationships um, that I mentioned a moment ago. So tell us more specifically about the talk that you're going to give at the conference. You've got this phrase, trauma-informed approach to understanding research. Tell us what that means. What it means is that in, embedded in the research process is this trauma-informed thinking and trauma-informed trauma awareness. So throughout the research processes, the things that I've been talking about uh, with lived experience, making uh, a guiding contribution, leading this thinking, we're also, we're also concerned about avoiding re-traumatisation. So we do that by empowering individuals and staff in decision-making, creating safety and trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, building on people's strengths. And we recognise that people with lived experience of mental health uh, challenges, mental illness, may have had interrupted schooling, interrupted education, interrupted uh, higher education, maybe at university or in the college sector. So all of these things contribute to our trauma awareness and we build awareness and understanding for people around the impact of trauma. We engage with people in the research process, being aware of trauma triggers and the relationship between trauma and current contributions and thoughts and behaviours. And we've had a lot of success in building narratives, not just in terms of university outputs, but in the, at the highest level of the Australian government. We recently developed a trauma-informed quality and safety guide using all of these principles, where we partnered with Lift Experience to produce quality and safety guide for the best decision-making at the point of care, taking into account the potential impact of trauma, trauma triggers, and the relationship between trauma and current thought and behaviour. So that's where that thinking really sits um, in research, but also in national policy development. And what's your view on how well a kind of trauma-informed approach is finding its way into clinical practice? It, it seems to me that that's very varied currently. You know, if you compare how a frontline mental health nurse is thinking about trauma in their practice on a regular basis with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker how well do you think those ideas are now becoming embedded in, in services? I think that's a great question and I think we've got a long way to go. There's certainly an effort around um, leaning in around those key themes of safety and trustworthiness, if you like, uh, 
but there's more that needs to be done and money needs to be spent to establish, you know, sensory modulation facilities, adapting physical spaces, providing clear information for people, um, choice, connection, collaboration. They're really fundamental in trauma-informed thinking, but we need those physical spaces we need money to be spent on sensory modulation and we need better collaboration so that service providers or consumers who guide these processes can be properly remunerated and you know, properly resourced and funded to be able to do that. Um, we also need and need to work on trauma-informed language. And um, we another piece of work that we've just finished um, in South Australia is, is the development of a trauma-informed language guide. So um, that's really assisting people in, in the clinical area um, to really think carefully, if you like, building on that whole concept of um, it's not about what's wrong with you, it's about what's happened to you and how's what happened to you shaped your thinking and feeling today. Um, those sorts of things that we often hear about in trauma-informed practice. You're going to give this talk at the conference, which is happening on the 14th to 18th of September, the Australian Conference on Traumatic Stress. Um, what sort of people are you going to hope come along to hear your talk and what will they get? Look, people who come along to the talk might be active researchers, for example, people working in universities or they might be out in practice. And if we're really true to ourselves, if we really want to be able to do the best quality work, the most applicable, applied forms of work that's translatable, that has an impact at the point of care. We are much better to do that based on understanding the beliefs and experiences of people who access our service. And we know a good many uh, people who access mental health, drug and alcohol, and even in correctional facilities have a significant trauma event or trauma history. So what we've really got is a great opportunity to work collaboratively, empower individuals and staff, colleagues in decision-making. And we do that for the benefit of everybody, creating safety and trustworthiness. We're also creating an environment that's good for people who are not service users or consumers, who are workers, who may indeed have their own trauma histories, their own backgrounds of having particular challenges. So what we're doing as a collective is that we're building on the strengths and skills our best thinking um, that's informed by and guided by and made safe through trauma-informed thinking. I'm really interested finally in asking you about this kind of gap that we currently have between this world that you're talking about and this kind of thinking and what actually gets done, what actually gets funded. Um, and it seems to me that there's a lot of you know research priority setting exercises that happen and are co-produced wonderfully, and then end up with a list of research questions, priorities, which do represent um, what is actually needed to be done by people, for people with lived experience. Um, and then that work doesn't get funded. It never gets done. Or there's a 20-year gap between you know, those projects starting. So what do we do to make the system a bit more joined up so that we can actually speed up this process? I think our national, in the Australian context, certainly our national policy settings are built around trauma-informed thinking. So the current um, frontline thinking about practice is certainly around trauma-informed. And if I was to look back and do a quick calculation of the last um, $1 million of funding that our group have received, 
um, I would say that it all involves trauma-informed thinking. So we have people with lived experience on um, all our supervision, PhD supervision panels. So we currently have just on $750,000 of um, uh, external funding for PhD scholarships in our group. All of those panels, all of those groups have lived experience input. We have lived experience taking part. And similarly, if I think about the last two major grants that we've been uh, very successful to receive, we've partnered with people with lived experience, we've co-produced the, the design, the thinking, um, the um, understandings that go into those grants. And that, in a sense, we've now become rewarded by the funders for doing that. So I think these practices are shifting and I think there's a greater emphasis on ensuring the, the right kind of connections that is that are not tokenistic, that are not ticker box, um, that are not um, um, fake advertising or fake news about these very important principles. Um, and people talk about those experiences. So if you're a research team and if you establish welcoming and supportive environments where lived experience partners feel free to be part, feel confident and free to be part of the research community, that will go a long way to your research team co collaborations and contributions. And I think in the Australian context, at least, and possibly in New Zealand, you're likely to be refunded for that reason. So I'm, I'm pleased that we've, we've got those signs happening now. I like the sound of what's happening in your part of the world. It's about power though, isn't it? It's about senior academics and others giving up some of the power. How do you think we can encourage that to happen more? Look, I think, I think it is true that some people may experience that. And I think of it, I like to think of it as elevating the contrast. So um, if we think about power and, and some of the traditions in academia and what professors believe that they should be, um, how they should be defined or, ident or their identities in research, I think what we're really saying is that we're finding new opportunities uh, and roles for people with lived experience who want to contribute to this overall success. So research professors and senior staff, people who perhaps have histories where power features strongly, they must know how to move, know how and when to move in new ways. And that's about being flexible. And I think the scope of projects, the scope of roles, the engagement process um, when that becomes clear to everyone, that becomes transparent to everyone, you can sort of see some of those traditional power dynamics shrinking away. Um, in our group, for example, we, um, we provide office and infrastructure practical supports to our lived experience um, co-researchers. We provide appropriate reimbursement and employment processes. Um, we, we give people academic titles and academic status, if you like. Um, to be able to do that and, and take it in combination with each other. We're really starting to see information exchange and a really breaking down of some of those old traditions um, that, yeah, still exist sometimes in academia. 